I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. I'm here with Tanya from Trees for Life. Thanks, Tanya, for giving us some of your time. That's all right, David. It's great. What a, what a great event we're at. It's amazing. I wasn't here last year, but every year it's so different and there's so many you know a range of different exhibitors and that sort of stuff and we're very excited this year because we're with animals anonymous and you guys always pull a really big crowd so we are pretty good yeah <laughs> you are good and so we i mean we you know trees aren't all that sexy are they so um you can't exactly cuddle a tree and well you can but you know yeah and, and that's the whole reason why animals anonymous are here with animals i mean realistically habitat. as you know yeah it's all about habitat yeah it is but it it's is. hard to sell habitat so we have a load of animals as well that's which helps right. you guys helps us yeah exactly Ho- so hopefully helps the australian hand wildlife in, hand in hand absolutely so, so trees for life yes what is the, the your sort of main priorities what do you do well trees for life it was established primarily well it, it is a south australian organization it was formed in 1981 um, by a group of like-minded community members who could foresee an absolute need for you know people coming in landholders clearing land through no fault of their own you know they just needed to have crops or whatever to survive anyway and so South Australia is basically one of the most denuded um, states in Australia Mm. if not the um, with so much native vegetation wiped out of the Adelaide Hills and Mount Lofty Ranges Um, so basically what we do is protect and conserve what little native vegetation, indigenous native vegetation is still surviving but we also um, provide landholders with really cheap bulk cost cost effective seedlings so they can revegetate their properties because seedlings cost a hell of a lot of money and then you've got to worry about stockheading them, they might not survive droughts or floods, then you've got to um, worry about um, you know keeping them watered at least for the first year so we understand that it's a huge cost. I mean, farmers have to fence them off, and so time and effort. So this way, we're providing them with an incentive to plant on a bulk basis for shelter belts and what have you. And wildlife corridors are a huge thing now. Yeah. Um, but we're also doing a paddock tree project, and that's because there's declining, um, declining woodland birds in the Mount Lofty area. So we've got, we've planted thousands of paddock trees all around on properties. We're working with landholders and it's basically to bring back those declining woodland birds. So you would put back what was once there and try and increase that so that you bring back there. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. How, um, how does, um, there's a funny noise through the mic there. (laughs) How, How do you get your money? What, do you rely on donations or? We... Well, we used to rely a lot on, um, well, not a lot, but we've always been relatively self-sufficient, but we have relied on government grants. Um, now we have federal grants coming through and state grants coming through the NRMs, and then we apply for grants for, say, for example, our Threatened Species Project. But um, primarily it is uh, our members, supporters, donors, um, and that's how we survive. We don't, we don't really have much government funding. No. And unfortunately, and very controversial, but the, the funding for the environment is declining. It's, it's, I think there's 27 million that was um, in savings, effectively cut from the last state budget for yeah, the environment. Well. 
and um, and out of that, you know, that what's left has to be divvied up by with community groups and that sort of stuff. So we're doing having to do a lot more with a lot less, or be very savvy about it. Mm. But we've got some amazingly passionate supporters. And fortunately, people are being becoming more aware of habitat, the need for habitat creation and climate change and what's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years. So That's what um, we're all trying to put out there, the awareness oh. for what needs to change. Um, and, yeah, we do. We all need money for that. You know, the more money yeah. we can make, the more difference we can make. Yeah, and we, we always say, I mean... We're not one of those charity organisations that gets money and and puts out a new ruler or, you know, here, have a free pen sort of thing. So, um, you know, what what money we get, it goes directly to on-ground works and it's, you know, our our members and supporters really appreciate that. You would heavily rely on volunteers as well? Yeah, we've got probably about 2,000 volunteers, Steve. Is this Australia-wide? No, it's just Just South Australia. (laughs) Predominantly Adelaide and Mount Lofty Ranges, and we've got um, we've got 350 bush sites in that area, and we have bush action teams of volunteers who go out and make sure the invasive weeds don't kill out the native vegetation. Um, they do everything from growing seedlings for landholders to working in the office to helping down the nursery. We've got a nursery just down the office too. Um, so we've got, yeah, about 2,000 volunteers and That's they are amazing. amazing. We don't see them very often because they're always out in the bush. Do you, do you have, actually have sites that people can go and yeah, visit? Yeah, so, so, well, we've, as I said, we've got about 300 and... I reckon it was about 315 or 350, I can't really remember. But people can go out there and they're all signposted and all you can go, anyone can go and go along on a bush action team day mm. and spend a day. They can get picked up in our bus... Um, and we take them out in the bush and, and if they like being out there and, you know, seeing the native vegetation and wildlife, um, then they'll come back. If not, they've gone out and seen a nice site out in the Australian bush. It's Spent perfect. some time outside. Absolutely. Um, it's just absolutely amazing. I love it. I, I just love spending time outside and to make a difference with you guys is awesome. Yeah. So if people do want to help, how do they get hold of you? We've got a website, www.treesforlife.org.au or they can phone us. We're in Adelaide near IKEA and um, our number is 8406 0500. That is very awesome. Thank you so much, Tanya. You're welcome. That is great. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Hey guys, I'm now with Ellie from the SA Murray-Darling Basin. Good day, Ellie. Hey, how are you going? Thanks for giving us some of your time. No problems. Um, yeah, can you talk about what you guys do? Sure. So um, I'm a community engagement and communications officer for the SA Murray-Darling Basin. I work um, within the major projects area, so working on um, major projects within the Riverland region. Uh, two projects primarily, so the Pike floodplain project and the Cataract Cove floodplain project. And what we're trying to achieve through those projects is implement engineered infrastructure into the creeks and um, around that area to enhance um, floodplain inundation um, into the area there. So what that will achieve is um, it will give us the ability to improve the health and condition of the understory vegetation, the ecology. It will be great for our plant and animal life um, within that area. Currently the area is suffering from severe ecological decline um, without having any water 
wait for such a long time due to the millennial drought and create that more frequent wedding and drying cycle. So my job um, in the department is to get that message out into the community and bring them along for the journey. Um, I assist in social media posts. I provide a lot of social media content and communications. I work with our community um, and get them involved in what we're doing. That's great. So you, you do a lot of marketing and things and you try and get as many people involved. Yes, that's exactly um, right. You're, you're fully government run? Yep, 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 yep. So, um, the, so we work within um, the Department of Environment and Water and we also have a lot of support um, and help from our volunteers within the Riverland region that are on our community groups and they play a massive part in what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, volunteers do play a big part in everything that we try yep. to do nowadays. That's great. Um, you spoke about Pike River, one of my favourite parts of the river. I've stayed there a few times. Yep. Um, love it. Yep. Yeah, what do you actually do to help Pike River? So for us, we'll be implementing engineered solutions to ensure that there's enough water to be spilled into the creek beds and out into the floodplain area. Currently, it's suffering from a lot of um, salt within the groundwater and that is currently causing a lot of um, decline in the area. So by implementing those structures, um, that will give us the ability to bring that back to life. We are also implementing fishways so um, at those structures, so that will allow for fish to move up and down the creek system, which they haven't been able to do um, successfully. So yeah, there's a heap of work that's going on to ensure that we're keeping all of that running successfully. Very good. And these things are working. You're seeing some success. Yeah, so we've actually, um, the projects are just coming um, to a start. So Pike floodplain project has commenced in the last couple of months. So we've got our um, contractors out there working on um, the blocking bank alignment, which spans um, from the beginning to the end of the floodplain. So they'll be mobilising that and bringing, uh, elevating that up to um, a, a certain level. So when we go to inundate um, the water from the reg- once the regulators are operational, we'll be able to contain water on one side of the floodplain and ensure that that then evaporates and um, does its thing. Cool. And that will give everything longevity. Is that what your, your aim is? That is the aim. Save yeah. the Murray. That is. And then once we've got those structures in place, we'll have the ability to operate those um, whenever we, we need to. So depending on the time of year or how frequently the area will need that flooding um, once every three years because obviously we're not sure when there'll be the next natural flood. That's obviously the best thing for the, the floodplain area. Um, however, having these regulators in place will give us that opportunity to inundate pike um, whenever we need to. So you can flood it to, to give it a yearly flood maybe and, and really make it work well. Definitely. That sounds amazing. Um, any other real big projects that you're involved in? Yes. Yeah, so um, I guess a part of my role is to obviously promote the projects that we're doing. So we'll be looking to do community tours. So we'll get to um, take anyone that's interested within the general public um, out on a tour, um, take them around the floodplain, take them to some structures. They get to listen to um, some really cool information from our experts within the department about what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve. We're also um, obviously here at the field days today and we've been to other few events throughout the year just to get that message out to the community. Uh, we've got plans to, to do a heap of other promotional um, sort of events um, in, in the upcoming months. That's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah we've, we've all got to realise how important the Murray is to us. That's it. Um, and, and to everything in South Australia yeah. and the rest of Australia yes. as well. Yeah, so you rely on uh, volunteers? They definitely play a massive part in what we're, what we're trying to do and we're lucky we've got some really keen champions within the Riverland community that want to be involved and really passionate about their area because they have grown up here and they don't want to see it go to waste and decline so they jump on board and put in 
any feedback and get involved where where they possibly can, whether it's um, doing some um, sort of volunteer work with watering um, wetlands, doing any uh, reverge work. So it's really great to see that we have a lot of people that put their hands up to be involved. That's pretty awesome. If there's anyone who's listening who wants to be involved as well, how can they get involved? Definitely. As I'm the contact for these projects, they can definitely contact um, myself um, at the Department of Environment um, and Water Office and, yeah, I'll be able to catch their names and, um, yeah, give them any information on how to get involved. That's amazing. Thank you. Anything else you want to add? No, look, I just think it's a great project, um, what we're doing. It's only going to to improve the area and um, I think at the end of the day we're all on that same journey and um, it is a Band-Aid fix what we're doing and nothing um, will beat a natural flood, um, but we're all here just to just to save the area and make sure it kicks on. Well, it sounds like it's working. Thanks so much for your time, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Kyle Chalmers and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, Adrian here and I'm here with Kerry Waldhutter and she is the project officer and media communication person from the Department of Environment and Water. Welcome, Kerry. Thanks, Adrian. How are you today? Very well. Did I say your title correctly? No, you didn't. So I'm a project officer, media and communications for Natural Resources, South Australia, Murray-Darling Basin. Wow. And is that how you answer the phone? Yeah, you have to take a deep breath and you need to read it off what's in front of you on your desk. We have it stuck there because otherwise you're going to call it something else. That's hilarious. So your role involves community consultation, letting people know about the issues that the river has. Yeah, so our team, um, community engagement is a big part of what we do. So we work with different areas of our department to run community consultations. We also, um, Jane, who you've met this weekend that we work with, she does the traditional media for us, so all our news releases. And we also have a person on our team called Kim who's absolutely amazing with anything digital. So she does all of our um, animation work um, and I come up with the crazy ideas for social media and she'll make whatever I want her to make for me. So, yeah. Fantastic. And so as, as we can see, we're at the Riverland Field Days here. And there's a lot of information on the walls and on brochures and things like that, but you're finding that a great way to reach people is through social media? Yeah, so I don't know if you've ever noticed when you walk around the field days, there are people looking at things, but there are also a lot of people with their heads on their phones. And we're finding that all the way across community engagement these days, that um, people are not engaging with other people, they're engaging with technology. So if you want to reach those people and they're not willing to speak to you, just put it in front of their face you know straight on Facebook Twitter Instagram because that's where people are at that's great and I guess the, the river is such an important thing that I mean people in the city they, they might come out once or twice a year if they're lucky to come and have a kayak or a, a water ski um, or have a fish but it's where we get our drinking water I think Adelaide not all of Adelaide's drinking water comes from the Murray per se but rivers in general yeah and it's also what waters our food Yeah, it is, and I think um, people are increasingly becoming less engaged with the environment. We're becoming really urban dwellers and not really understanding that, you know, all of our resources are coming from the regions. Um, The city is a you know, a large drainer of our, our resources that come from the region. So people who live in the urban areas need to understand that these are very important parts of their life and, you know, they need to be invested in it. One thing to look at it like a resource, but I think we also need to look at our inequality of life as well. People need to 
to enjoy the river and the water just as much as they need to drink it. It's good for our mental health and it's, it's something that we need to encourage our children to do because it seems to be getting lost these days. I'm really pleased with the projects you guys are doing because it's bringing species back by changing environmental flows. I've heard today about you know, plant species coming back. <laughs> I know, you did say that to me. We're no more chats about water today, Kerry. So. <laughs> Part of what we do um, at the Department of Natural Resources is we help manage the state's fuel loads as far as you know slowing down fires in national parks. So um, everybody that's involved in this business actually has the opportunity to be on the fire crew. You just need to have a particular level of fitness and the um, ability to be available so yeah if um if you are ever looking at working in the environment it's probably something you'd be having an opportunity to get involved in okay and that's and that raises another good point if somebody is listening and they think gee i could do with a sea change or a river change and they would like to get involved in working in this environment what, what sort of paths could they or steps could they take? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of ways to get into um, natural resources. Traditionally, people just think that you need to go to university and that's the only way in. But myself, I started a very long time ago <laughs> um, as a construction and maintenance worker, as a trainee um, at Black Hill National Park. So um, I didn't finish my university degree. Um, so I went and did a traineeship in horticulture and Australian land restoration. Um, and from there, I went on to become a project firefighter and over a course of you know 15 to 17 years found myself working in communications so there's lots of different ways you can get involved in natural resources and I just encourage people that if you have got an interest but you think oh you know I'm not going to get the grades to go to uni or um, I don't you know I don't want to be a scientist I want to be a spokesperson for the environment to look at other other ways so yeah very well said in fact we had the CEO from Fame the foundation for Australia's most endangered species on the podcast and I thought we'd be talking about quolls and numbats and all the projects they work with but in fact her job her main focus is getting the money for that project so so these projects require a lot of different things there's what you do with the consultation and uh, the social media there's the getting the money there's the management side of it it's not all on field playing with koalas and there are yeah. people <laughs> and you'll probably really find the people in the field that um okay they probably said they don't play with koalas they're working with koalas but um those people have a specific skill set you know and they might not be necessarily good with money or figures so it doesn't matter you might be like you said sitting in a bank being really great at um doing finance and you could actually work in the environment department it's something that we need here too. And, so. it's, and it's super important. Kerry, thank you for your time. Is there anything that you would like to add? I just think it's amazing that you guys continually support us here at the Riverland Field Days. It's definitely a highlight. There's a lot of people that come through, you know, year after year to see you. So, yeah, thank you for all your efforts this oh, weekend. It's been be fantastic. A group hug. We're actually hugging. We're not. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> no, Kerry, that's awesome. I love seeing you every year, mate. Um, thanks so much. Hi, I'm Ranger Stacey, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Okay, guys, I'm here with Benita Dillon. And Benita, you're a regional programs manager for the Department of Environment and Water. I am, yes. <laughs> so your role, what does that involve? Um, I'm currently working on the, within the Murray River National Park and our big focus is to try and improve the ecology of the creeks and the floodplains. So we've got lots of projects going on. 
We have removed barriers within the creeks, so there are pipes and banks that are crossing natural creeks and flood runners, and we've been working over a, a few years now to remove those barriers and put in fish-friendly alternatives. So some of the projects we've done is mainly focused on Eckert's Creek, which runs through the Murray River National Park. And for the first time in over 80 years, we have fish passage all the way through the creek and back to the river. And we've done that by removing the pipes and the earthen banks that are in the way and put in regulators and fishways. So the the fish actually swim upstream and they swim through the fishways and then out the other end. So then they can contribute to the fish population. So it's really exciting to look back and think, wow, these fish haven't been able to pass this barrier for over 80 years when the locks and weirs and things were put in. So... Really exciting. So what's a a fishway? A fishway, the ones we've got put in Eckert's Creek, they have um, a series of vertical slots and it's a bit like a ladder. So when we get higher flows, the fish are queued to swim upstream and they swim upstream to find areas to breed and feed. And they swim up through a little slot and then they can rest and then they look at where the flow is coming and they swim upstream. So they're continually going up a little ladder until they reach the exit and then they can get out. So instead of trying to swim through a pipe that's dark and a little bit scary and often um, it's a bit of a jump, they'll have to jump up and through the pipe, they've got a nice little fishway with the right velocities and the right amount of flow that they can just swim and make their way through the fishway and get to the other side. That's really interesting. And how does that benefit the overall population of fish? Yeah, so if you think about it, if um, populations are stuck between two barriers, then unless there's a big natural flood and everything's overtopped and they can move, they're sort of stuck within that creek or that wetland. So fishways give them the ability to move wherever and whenever they want to. And do some of these fish need to be able to travel upstream for breeding? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Some of them like to stay within um, a small area, so we have freshwater catfish and they don't move a long way, but there are other species that move, um, yeah, a really long way. And organisations like Sardi track fish and they can move, you know, hundreds of kilometres, some of them. So So your job gets you outside a lot? Yeah, I would like to get outside a lot more. Um, I love being out and just looking at the response of what's happening and, you know, with the ecology and the water birds and looking at some vegetation that's sort of increased in health. I certainly love being outside, but um, managing a big project obviously keeps me indoors a bit and a fair bit of computer work and reporting and yeah, managing budgets and all of those sorts of things. But it's it's a bit of a balance. I get out when I can. All the fun stuff. But super important because without that, these big projects don't happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so some of our projects are really focused on in-stream and improving the flows. And what we do with the regulators is instead of having a pipe that's open all the time and we get really stable water levels in the creeks, now we've got regulators where we can put stop logs in and out. So we can decide if we want more flow going down the creek or less and we can really get the water levels to go up and down which is really good for the vegetation and all the the reeds and things along the side if they're inundated their habitats for frogs and bugs and water birds so we can really start to manage these creeks really variable which brings in a whole heap of new habitats for the whole food web really. That's really interesting. I, I used to work at a sanctuary and there was some man-made waterways and the water was always kept to the same level and we would find that the banks would undercut and slump and the, a, a certain species of plant wouldn't reproduce because they didn't, it never dried out. Exactly. Yeah, the variability is really important and what happens, so what we're doing in Eckerts Creek at the moment 
in mid-September we took some boards out of the inlet structure which is at Bank J and let down a lot more flow and by having more water in the creek the soil on the edges freshen up which give the vegetation the riparian vegetation on the edge it gives them a real freshen up and they you know green leaves start coming and just by um, having this spring pulse it's sort of the right time of year that this would have happened naturally so the frogs are kicked into gear uh, the fish will start moving yeah it's really exciting so it's trying to simulate those natural flows that once occurred while still being able to utilize the water for agriculture Absolutely. There needs to be a balance there. The other project that I'm working on is around flooding a much larger area of the floodplain. So we're going to engineer some structures within the creeks and then we can log them up and push water out of the banks and over the floodplain so we can water the black box and the red gums that we're finding over time without these natural floods as often and as regularly as as they need to be flooded that the health is declining quite severely and during the last drought in the early 2000s the vegetation declined and we actually got a fair bit of vegetation die so the big project the floodplain inundation project I'm managing at the moment will hopefully even with quite low flows in the river will be able to mimic a much larger natural flood and hopefully get the condition of the red gum and black box that need these flooding quite regularly um, get them in a really good condition that they're resilient and if we get a drought like we had in the early 2000s be resilient enough to get through beautiful and it's interesting that they can go the other way too can't they if they're inundated constantly a river red gum doesn't like that for they can do a year they can do two years but you know too much of having wet feet is not a great thing for any tree absolutely and that's a real challenge with these projects because we've got about 25 ecological objectives for the site so this is just within my river national park so there's objectives around water quality and long-lived vegetation and understory vegetation um, water birds soil salinity like there's so many things that we need to manage and um, depending on what your ecological objective is will depend on how long and how deep and what time of year you might be flooding. Have you had any species that have surprised you that have come back? Well the spring pulse that we're doing at the moment I was out on the floodplain the other day and I saw a red-necked avocet which is a it's a, a migratory species and it likes to feed in really shallow water and it's got a curved up bill so they walk through the shallow water and they pick up the invertebrates on the surface and eat and I had never seen one of those in the park before I'm sure lots of older people have probably seen them a lot but I was super excited so the spring pulse has actually filled up a small depression in the floodplain and then this bird for me has just come out of nowhere. They are the coolest looking birds. Aren't they amazing? Yeah. They are so cool. The long thin beak and like you say it just curls up on the, on the end. Yeah it's and so they strange. use it as a bit of a scoop and they scoop up all the little bugs that are floating and skimming across the water and it's yeah they like really shallow sort of brackish even salty water but yeah it was really really cool. That's really interesting. We had Steve Walker the uh, the frog expert on the podcast the other day and what, what surprised me was I've always learned that frogs are a biological indicator. And he said, not always the case. He, he pointed out to me that common froglets will live anywhere. So you might be hearing all these frogs and thinking, that's not that bad. But if they're just common froglets, they can live in anything. And I thought that was interesting. There'd, there'd have to be a... Um, I have no idea how many frogs are here in the Murray. In the Adelaide Hills where we're from, there's six species. Yeah, I think we have seven species. Okay, yeah. it's not a competition. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I've, I've won that one for sure. 
That's great. And have you seen any any of these beautiful big lace monitors you get around here? Um, we do get them on the floodplain and they are just incredible. You see them just clinging to the big red gums. Um, and for us, they're a bit of an indicator species. And unfortunately, over the years, we, we don't see them as often as we would like. But with having more floodplain inundation and trying to mimic what would have happened naturally, hopefully, hopefully these species will come back and we'll see more of them. I have to ask you about the Murray-Darling carpet pythons. Their numbers have decreased too, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, we had a threatened species officer who did some work on the, the carpet pythons. They sent out a whole heap of letters to people who had water licences along the river and asked them to send back to see where and um, if they'd seen any recently. And it was yeah a real shame that in the 70s and 80s they were seen much more regularly and now it's really tough to actually find them. But it was good to have a stock take and see where there still are pythons in the wild and still thriving. But yeah, the big hollows in the river red gums and the cliffs, the holes in the cliffs, certainly provides really good habitat for them. I wonder if there's a, a nesting box that these guys would utilise. We could maybe get some nesting box, get the kids involved, making some, probably possums and birds would use them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, regent parrots, bats, possums, yeah, there'd be a whole heap of things. Maybe things that would even surprise us might use these nest boxes, but yeah. I guess for us it's really about protecting and ensuring that the red gums and the hollows can, can grow to be those really old trees that produce the hollows, because ultimately those big old trees with natural hollows are, are what the species will really be after. And when you talk to landholders that are involved in the water as well. Do you find people are normally pretty receptive to what you're trying to achieve? Absolutely. Um, I think especially when people live on the land, they're, they're really passionate about the environment that they live in. And I can really see that they you know, they work towards that balance of having water for agriculture, horticulture, but also to improve the health of these wetlands and also the floodplains. And everyone in the Riverland that I talk to seems to be really passionate about the environment, which is great. Yeah, I have to say that did surprise me when I first started doing rural shows 10 years ago. You know, at TAFE and at uni, you learn that the, with all these farming practices that are damaging the environment and you, you don't realise that the farmers love it out here. They're out here because most of the time they enjoy the wildlife and the nature that surrounds them, don't they? Absolutely. And they've lived there for so long and they've seen the changes. So they've got all that background and all that information that we, we don't know. So, you know, to pick their brains and, and find out what they used to see and what they used to catch in the creeks and um, what they used to see on their floodplains and on their properties is just really important information that we need to gather. Is there anything you would like to add about what you're doing or what you would like to see in, in the future? I guess our vision for the project is there is going to be some uh, short-term pain with some construction out at the Murray River National Park. There's going to be some campsites and access roads that have to be closed down while we construct the structures that we need to build. But long-term, um, we're going to have a fantastic park with um, super healthy vegetation that's really going to support the food web out there. We're going to have good access tracks. We're going to have super good campsites um, and hopefully it'll be a really great tourism opportunity with canoeing, bird watching, hiking, mountain biking. Um, so I'd really like to see Murray River National Park as a real icon for the whole state or even Australia. That sounds so good. We hear so many negative things about the environment. I love the positivity. Benita, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problems. Thank you. Hey guys, I'm here with Nathan Creeper. Um, he's a wetland ecologist from the SA Murray-Darling Basin. G'day Nathan. G'day. 
Um, yeah, we've got you over. Thanks for giving us a bit of time. Just wanted to find out really what you guys do. Well, we're the uh, flood plain and wetlands team um, in the SAMDB region. And we are responsible for managing and monitoring um, the pool connected and temporary wetlands uh, along the river. We manage about 40 pool connected wetlands, which means the wetlands that are connected to the main uh, river channel at pool level. And these structures we can manage to close them and open them, uh, which introduces a wetting and drying cycle and this variability into wetlands that have evolved under these climate variable conditions um, that we don't get under a managed river system. To go along with our our management, we also do a lot of ecological monitoring and that influences um, the way we can manage and get the best results out of these wetlands. So the monitoring includes things like um, chucking flight necks into the wetlands and seeing what kind of fish species, their abundance, things like that. We do uh, tree condition assessments, frogs and birds, water birds, uh, water quality, all things like that that can influence our management to get the best ecological response. So you're not just looking at what's in the water, you're actually looking at all the bird life, frog life, everything that is that you're trying to help as well. Yeah, so it's not just um, the wet bit, the wetland itself, mm-hmm. it's a riparian vegetation and the area surrounding that, that water body. Very cool, very cool. So you you, um, you find evasive species and things and, and try and control that, like I, I guess carp, for instance? We, we don't directly control invasive species. Um, for carp, a lot of the wetland structures do have what we call carp screens on them. So these are either vertical bars or diamond mesh, similar to a security door okay. at home. And we can close these, prevent large breeding carp getting into our wetlands and breeding. Keeping the carp out of the wetlands means they're not in there stirring up the, the base. We get lower turbidity, which in, means aquatic vegetation more able to grow. Um, we get less predation on native fish from the carp and things like that. So carp obviously is one of the largest invasive species. We also get the oriental weather loach and don't directly control them, but we keep an eye on um, their spread, whether they're moving down the system or not through okay. our monitoring. And then you can use that to keep on top of things i guess that's it yeah yep so so what uh, what sort of condition are these waterways in are they okay are they struggling well obviously we had the millennium drought mm-hmm. um, from early 2000s to 2009-10 so we're obviously still trying to improve their condition and their resilience from that period um, we have had the flood in 2010-2011 and another another large flood in 2016 so their condition is definitely improving um, but it really did knock them down a bit that that millennium drought yeah okay but you're you're learning how to control these things for the future and making things better for the future if we did have another drought yeah so it's it, it it's part of improving their resilience so if we um in in the times where there is um water available by managing these structures we're improving the resilience of the trees and um uh, say frog populations etc to have the resilience to survive those um, drought periods in a better state than they would. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, keeping that ecology going is, is what we what we need out in that way. Um, yeah, any um, any future sort of schemes for for your waterways? Are you 
all on top of it or, or have you got plans for future stuff? Um, I mean there's the um, SAFIT projects which is um, infrastructure projects on the parking Cataraca system uh, similar to the, the Chowla e-regulator that's been in operation for the last few years. So these big regulators, once they come online, will means we, we're able to um, inundate the three big floodplains in South Australia, being Chowla, Pike and Cataraco floodplains. So that's something really exciting. Uh, there's weir pool manipulations as well, that they're looking uh, to using existing uh, locks and weir structures to raise and lower weir pool levels. It's another great way of um, getting water into the high elevated temporary wetlands and improving the riparian ecosystems along the channel. So there's quite a, quite a bit of um, capacity coming aboard and able to, to better manage um, these uh, floodplain and wetland systems along the channel. Very good. Yeah, no, I can understand how that can all work and help. How did you get into this line? Did you go to university or...? I went to university, but I um, studied analytical chemistry. So I come from a, a geochemistry and chemistry background. The time to this job comes from during the drought and studying acid sulfate salts, okay. um, which are a big environmental problem caused by soils being exposed the atmosphere that hadn't been exposed for a long time and then we're acidifying and releasing heavy metals and having low pH, similar to battery acid. So that, that um, exposed me to the basin as a whole, doing soil surveys and that kind of thing through, through that work. Uh, that was with CSIRI Land and Water. Um, and then I wanted to expand from an acid sulphate soil background into a larger wetland management and um, ecological sense. So it's been a great opportunty to Very secure good. this role. Yeah, and it's an area that you can definitely fall in love with. It's oh, definitely. You get yeah. to go out in the field a lot. Do you spend? Where do you spend most of your time? I think these jobs are some of the best jobs going for sure. Yeah. Uh, we yeah we get to spend a lot of time out um, in the beautiful sunshine in the beautiful nice. wetlands. Yeah, it's excellent. Sounds like a dream. It is. And a dream. we all thank you for the work you do. It's it's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything that we can do to help? Yes, there's definitely some things people can do if they want to get involved. One of them would be a timely thing with the frogs um, starting to cool out there in the wetlands um, is to get involved in um, uh, monitoring frogs wherever that might be in the state. Um, and they can do that through a citizen science through a free app called Frogwatch SA. So just frogwatchsa.com.au or search for the app. We, we love in, citizen <laughs> science projects. So yeah. yeah. It's great app. It's got all the frog species of the Murray Valley and their calls, so you can get used to their calls and recognise what species are calling from the different calls and identify them, identify them how many they are, what species are there. And feed it back to you guys. And, and feed it back to us, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And gives a great, great picture. So the one, the one to listen for is the southern bell frog, which is a threatened species in our state. Yep. So yeah, get, get really familiar with that call, and if you definitely hear it, submit a... Um, survey for sure that is absolutely awesome thank you nathan for your time thanks very much steve and we've got michael alexander here from black snake productions mike on the mic how you going today mike hey mate how are you good bud good to see you again we've uh, known each other for a few years haven't we mate yeah quite a few years now so you do uh, the same thing we do here in South Australia. You're a wildlife demonstrator over in Victoria, and we meet up each year here at the Riverland Field Days and catch up. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's really good because we get to cut your lunch over here and um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> step in on your territory a bit. No, it's actually, I reckon it's awesome that we get to work together in this, like, and bring different animals and do different things. And actually having two wildlife uh, 
displays at this event is just it's you know better than having one. It's it's pretty good, and the people a lot of people have commented they've come over here and they've said, "Oh, Michael, tell us to come over here because you've got a boo book out. Yeah, he's got a bar now, and we see the two different, different yeah exactly, species and, and the freshy and the salty, and and you've got a little macropod and I've got a big one and. Yep. Yeah, two different water dragons. It's actually worked out really well. <laughs> we should be next to each other. Yeah. It'd be massive. How do you find coming out to the country gigs and talking to landholders about wildlife? Does it, one thing that surprised me when I first started doing the country gigs, at TAFE and uni, you, you learn about, you know, farmers are doing this to the land and that to the land and it's never good. But when you meet the people... Oh, you, they care about it. They, they do. They care about it. Um, you still get a lot of people, unfortunately, set in their old ways. But overall... I do find that people really want to listen to what I have to say. Um, and when, you're, when you really relate back those animals and the, their, their place in the ecosystem and the balance and how they, how they fit in to um, how that affects their crops, their livestock, their land, you know, the erosion by planting more trees and things like that, creating the habitat actually improves uh, their potential livelihood. They, they really respond. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Putting a dollar value on, you know, adding conservation value to your property, yeah. And but I'm, also just yeah, like their kids' future. You know, simply that you know, for instance, like we got the broadshells and the Murrays and the other turtles there in the crayfish, and we call them the cleaners. They're the rivers and waterway cleaners. And what happens when the cleaners go? When they're gone, you know, uh, those waterways are over on with algae. Um, there's dead animals and plants that there's nothing can you know controlling and cleaning it cleaning it up so you know that's going to affect the irrigation that's going to affect the quality of water they're putting on their plants and crops and that's why our, where our food comes from so and when they think about it like that they go oh wow okay we, we really need to look at the, the health of our waterways and our irrigation channels that's really interesting yeah and having the owls we talked about earlier too, I mean, encouraging people to have our nesting boxes on yep. their property, they'll find that the owls will eat the rodents. Yep. Same, I guess same as snakes. You, you would hear it as often as we do. The only good snake's a dead snake. That's oh, one of the, my God. One of the it's not as bad. I, like 11 years now we've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, just this, this business and, you know, like 17 years all up educating around Australia. It is reducing the amount of people that say it. That is, the reduction in it is, is noticeable. So when I started, it was like every second person. Now it's like two or three people a day. So <laughs> that, that's still a good reduction. Um, you know, and I've had people, the Wimmera Field Days, I've been doing it for like eight years. And I've had people say, you know, after what you said a number of years ago, we've changed what we do. And it's actually nice seeing there's animals out in the paddock now. We're talking about brown snakes, whereas before they were trying to find a shotgun and to blow its head off. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, it's really good to see that that change. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Mike, always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, Thanks you so too, much. Mate. I'm proud of you, mate. I am proud of you. I'm proud I'm of you. More <laughs> proud of you, bro. Always, always good to see you, Mike. Thanks yeah, very you much. Too, buddy. All right, it's Adrian here. I'm with Monique, and we're at the Riverland Field Days. And Monique, where do, where do you work? So I work uh, for the Australian dairy industry through Dairy South Australia, Dairy SA, uh, based in Murray Bridge. And my role is to ensure that farmers are implementing best practice natural resource management on farm. Right. So environmental protection essentially, but from a dairy farming perspective. Absolutely, yes. Uh, The farmers that I work with really want to make sure that they do the best for the environment around them as well as producing good quality milk 
and milk products for the consumer. So my role is to make sure they have the good information that enables them to do that. That's brilliant. It's fascinating you say that. I was talking to the Soul guys before and they um, we were talking about how coming out to these, these field days, you, you meet a lot of farmers and when you're at uni or at TAFE, you learn... Yeah, they, they create an impression that farmers are destroying the environment and they're, they're doing this and they're doing that. But when you meet the farmers, there are a lot of people that are really passionate, that appreciate living in the bush and want to do the right thing and they love the wildlife and uh, whatever else around them. We, we have to be a bit humble as um, natural resource management workers because a lot of the things that farmers do, they do because that was what science and the policy told them they had to do. Land clearing was legislated in South Australia till 1973. If you didn't clear your land, you lost it and it got repossessed from, from your business. So as, as an environmentalist now, we need to understand that sometimes we, we get things wrong and the farmers only want to do the right thing. When we change our minds about what the right thing is, we need to work with them to help them make those changes. That's fascinating. So before 1973, you had to clear your block. That was legislated. Yes, yeah, it was. That's so it's a change in mindset. You know, when we settled Australia, we need to clear and be able to farm the country, not have eucalyptus trees there, which were perceived to not be useful. We wanted wheat and we wanted wool. So we needed a completely different environment to grow those products. So the legislation reflected that desire for nation building, uh, whereas now we have a better understanding of how the two can coexist and we can have our native environment but also grow productive crops and pastures. And So bringing those two t- closer together is really important. That's fascinating. Wow, there you go. Oh, well, Monique, thank you. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. Okay, and I'm here with Matt from Doona. G'day, Matt. How you going, Matt? Good. So you work in Doona. It's a big place. You're obviously in the SA Murray-Darling Basin branch of Doona, yep. or how does that work? So we're the, the regional arm of the department and deliver all the on-ground works at the regional level, and obviously we're in the SAMDB. What does is, what is your job involve, mate? Well, that's a really good question. So my official title is uh, Senior Project Officer Mallee Recovery, which could be anything. Right. But basically I work in the Mallee systems in terrestrial ecology, so anything from reveg, restoration, helping farmers and landholders manage their land better, so giving them good sound advice, hopefully, on yep. uh, either threatened species management or native veg management or how they can just get a better outcome, preferably towards conservation. And do you find most, most uh, landholders are pretty receptive to information about conserving the natural environment? Um, I always try and take the view of uh, walk a mile in their shoes, I suppose. So I work with a lot of productive landholders and you've got to just acknowledge that they need to make a coin off that land. And if you can help them do that with a good conservation outcome, it's going to be sustainable. If you come in as, you know, holier than now and have a green agenda, they probably won't even talk to you. Yeah. So these are some people that have been there for four or five generations in the same patch, still surviving. They know what they're doing. Respect their knowledge, respect what they know about their land and work with it. Excellent. Now, that's interesting. We were talking earlier about how many, how many people actually do appreciate living out here and, and are, well, they do enjoy living with the wildlife and enjoy seeing new species. And they, they, have a, they do want to conserve the natural environment, although they have to make, like you say, make a buck off it. You, yeah, it's uh, surprising the level of knowledge people have. And, and I'll give the example of Malifowl. That's a classic. Um, a lot of the people I work with know a lot about Malifowl, and it's their Malifowl. That level of ownership is phenomenal. To the point you'll be at a meeting and, and they'll be like, oh, how are yours going? Oh, I've only got seven nests working. Oh, I've got ten. And it's almost a competition. It's not, I don't care what the sheep are doing. It's how their Malifowl are doing. 
and often you'll find there's a, a particular patch of scrub, normally a really good healthy one, that you know it might be the picnic spot at Easter, or it could be where great grandpa is either buried or you know liked, and they have far greater management and ownership of that scrub than if it had a formal level of protection, because they actually value it and they value it for what it is, and they know what's happening. They won't know when the orchids come up. They know when it's a dry year. They know what the mallee fowl are doing. Whether they'll tell you or not is a completely different matter. But <laughs> if you can gain their trust, and they'll show you some amazing things. That's really interesting. Do you find your job quite rewarding? I, I love my job most days, as, as with all jobs, and, and particularly government jobs sometimes. There's always an element of things that we don't want to do, admin, <laughs> procurement, paperwork. But you get the days where, you know, I might be checking on dam status in Dangali Wilderness Protection Area, and I get to drive around there justifiably for my job or, you know, camping out in a swag under the stars up there or um, I suppose the other classic one, uh, you know, we work with quite a few threatened species. So people come in and they, they're super excited to see a mallee Well, I've held mallee eggs. I've held mallee chicks as they dug out of a mound while the parents walked around the mound. Like, I've done some pretty cool stuff. I've had regent parrots in my hand and, and ringed their leg and then let them go again. So the kind of experiences and things that you can get and places you can go are phenomenal. The general public knew we'd be inundated. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Matt, thank you so much for chatting with us today. No worries. Appreciate anytime. your time and, and thanks for the work you do. That's all right. Happy to. I'm here with Wayne Pilts. G'day, Wayne. How are you, mate? Oh, fine. How's yourself? Yeah, good. Thanks, buddy. You're an emu farmer from Southern Emu. Yes, that's right. And we, uh, I think we've met a few times now at the Riverland Field Days here where you bring in your really cute and popular emu chicks. Yes, they're certainly popular, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think everyone, everyone likes having a bit of a cuddle and a bit of a photo with them. Yep, yep. Now, um, you were telling me that some of these emus can breed 30 years old, 40 years old. Is that correct? Did I hear yeah, that correct? Yeah, well, I have got birds at home that... Uh, Oh, some are 25, and there's some others that could be about 30 years old, and they're still laying quite well. Still laying eggs? Yeah. I've got to thank you, by the way, actually. Last year you gave us um, an emu egg, and we take that out to the schools, and the kids just love seeing oh, it. Oh, right, right, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you didn't break it. No, that's right. <laughs> so what's the incubation time on one of those things? Uh, about eight weeks. We put them in... We take them off the birds as they're laying because uh, if in the wild they'll only lay 8, 10, 12 eggs and the male will then sit on them and hatch them. Yep. But we take them off the females as they lay and then we get at least, well, we hope at least 25 eggs per hen. And we have had some good breeders where we've got up to 35 uh, on an average. And we put them in an incubator then for seven weeks, which is held at 35.5 degrees C. And about 48% humidity. They sit in there for seven weeks and there's a mechanism in there that rolls the eggs, the racks move uh, every three hours. As, as the, in the wild, the, the male would get up and move them, that, that, that's all he would do. Right. And then we put them into a hatcher that hasn't got uh, uh, racks that roll. So that they, the last week in there, they hatch in there. So because we can't leave them in the incubator because of the, the movement of the racks. Right, that's very interesting. And so the male will roll the eggs. Yeah, the male when he sits on the eggs and he's there for eight weeks, he virtually doesn't eat or drink, and he just gets up three or four times a day and just rolls the eggs around and then sits down again. That's interesting. Now I don't mean to sound sexist, but what's mum doing this whole time? She's off probably off our party. Right. <laughs> <laughs> off our luck. Um, so so. And we see we all, we're all familiar with like the adult emu and the, the emu chicks following uh, the adult emu. That's dad. That's dad. Yeah, Let, dad raises them till they're 
big enough to go away on their own. And that's basically 12 to 18 months. And then they might go off and find a partner themselves. Yeah. Right. So how many emu chicks would you produce in one year, do you think? Oh, we have produced up to six or 700. This year we're doing about probably five or 600, depending on the year, depending on what uh, uh, future contracts we've got for, for birds uh, and things like that. Interesting. And if you're walking around your yards, do these chicks follow you around like your dad? Uh, not really because we have them in smaller pens while they're young because we've got to virtually keep them undercover uh, with some open runs up till about six or seven weeks old. First two weeks they just sit in completely closed pens with heat lamps and then we put them into bigger pens with little runs, run outsides on them and then bigger and longer pens and works on like that. So, And they've got some shelter in their pens up till they're about four or five months old, maybe six. Right. And you keep them in... Uh, the sheltered pens, is that so you can control the temperatures? Uh, is that also to prevent predation from raptorial birds? Oh, yeah, well, we've got a uh, an area which we can put about uh, 500 chicks in that's completely fox-proof because we've picked in the sides and that because a few years ago, I mean five or six years ago, we had a bad episode where a fox got in and... Uh, Killed 148 chicks in one night. Jesus. Yeah, that's no good. Um, and this is a stupid question, but a fox would not harm an adult emu? Uh, it'd probably be the other way around. Yeah, okay. The, the big emus will will actually attack fox. They'll even attack dogs if they go in there. Right. And you get in the pens and start chasing them. So, yeah, they can be pretty aggressive. I've had a couple of dogs get in and they really shouldn't have because they didn't get out because the emus didn't want them to. <laughs> It's hilarious. And I imagine those claws are what we're talking about that'll do the damage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can, they're, they've can they got a vicious kick on them. A vicious <laughs> kick, yeah. There you yeah. go. Yeah. The um, Wayne, thank you so much for your time today, mate. No, that's fine, mate. Enjoyed it. And uh, hope to see you again next year. Look forward to it, mate. Good on you. Good on you. See ya. I am with Ash Baghurst now. And Ash... Um, where do you work? I work at the Department of Environment, Water and Natural Resources, but Juna is much easier to say. <laughs> so I work in the community engagement branch and I specialise in River Murray engagement, which I've been doing for about two years. Awesome. So community engagement, does that mean you're an interface between the public and environmental issues to do with the river? Well, at the moment, I'm getting a lot more face-to-face time with the community, which has been really good. Uh, especially with our Stand Up for the Murray campaign, which we're really pushing out across the state, but particularly here in the river regions. But a lot of the time my work involves helping other project staff plan their engagement, carry that engagement out and work out how it went and get on with the rest of the project. I also manage the River Murray SA Facebook page, which has been a great opportunity to get to know a lot of locals who are really passionate about the river and just have a lot of fun with them, really. Fantastic. It's a massive issue. i just got to say, as we're talking, you've got a python around your neck <laughs> and it's wrapping itself around the microphone. It would be really good if I could try and get a photo of this and you might be able to put it on your Facebook page. Right. Oh, um, that would be amazing. <laughs> hang on a second. I'm going to get a photo right now. That's hilarious. It's, I mean, it's a massive issue, isn't it, the river? I mean, you know, you meet landholders that share, you know, um, a small a small section of water and sometimes they can't get on. We're talking about a river that goes through three states. Yeah, such a huge part of, well, just Australia in general, I guess. So many people rely on it. And what we're trying to do at the moment with the Stand Up for the Murray campaign is just remind everyone that 
everyone deserves their fair share. It's not just for the environment, but it's really important. It's not just for the irrigators, but they're really important. And it's not just for the community, but they are also a crucial part of the makeup. And then, yeah, so that happens within every single state. And it's just a huge and complex issue. And we're just trying to help make sense of it. For help everyone. make sense of it. Yeah. I think you do a very important oh. job. And have you had some good conversations we with people? We're getting some great support. Uh, to be fair, I was concerned that there would be a lot of anger from the community, but yep. no, they're just really passionate and on board and want to know what they can do to help support the campaign, help support the river. That's awesome. Ash, thanks so much for speaking with us thank and you. thank you for the work you do to help our beautiful river. Happy to help.